when we were had children of our own here and we were told to put them out under an ass fall, you know. <laughs> we did that and drew up it was any addition, but that was all the cure. We, three, yeah. three times under the ass fall. Three times under the ass fall, that's right. That and, cured uh, hoop and cough. It, it was supposed to help uh, that the, the hoop and cough wouldn't be, wouldn't go be too severe, like, you know. That's for the change going down the pink row with that, it's bridled through on his head. <coughs> yeah, that's for hoop and cough. That's for the hoop and cough. But how, how would that be done? Yeah, you get the chain and bring it around with a pig stay. And uh, throw the bright living ass in on its head, like down on its shoulders. And uh, I make it sure, and all of the things you cure it. The hoop and cough, please, the hoop and cough. Hoop and cough is a disease, you might say, of the parents. In the sense that anybody who ever saw a child with whoop and cough would look at the child and uh, decide that the child was very ill. In fact, the child isn't too ill at all. One of my major mistakes, or my silliest mistake, was, as a very young doctor, diagnosing in my native district a child with whoop and cough, and therefore causing great anxiety to the parents, whereas I'd left the child alone, the child had got better in its own time. But anyway, down on the Cavan Mead border, there's a cure for whooping cough. Uh, There is what is reputed to be the skull of a bishop. And you drink water. The child is taken and given water out of this skull. Uh, I've seen the skull myself. In fact, I thought a learned friend of mine thought it would be the skull of a martyred bishop. So we went off and found it. And I took it off to my friend, professor of anatomy, who was very good at such things. So he looked at the skull... Uh, well, you say your man was 90. Uh, well, this man wasn't 90. I can tell you that, he says. Well, I knew that, I said, but what else could you tell me? I could, he says. I could tell you more about that about it. Uh, I could tell you, for instance, that uh, he was a man about 55, but I could also tell you that he never wasn't a bishop. Now, look, I said, the Holy Ghost may leave indelible marks on the soul, but I didn't know it left marks on the skeleton. It didn't, he says. But they, can't, they make queer fellows bishops sometimes in the Catholic Church, but they never make the village Egypt a bishop. This fellow was the village Egypt. Look. They don't believe in those things anymore. People become more educated, like, and Dr. I mean, say there's more doctors there now than there were, like, and. But they, well, they really believed in that thing. I, I say people used to do that were possessed by the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Must be, because otherwise, how could you do it, like? Well, it must have some could power. be the other way around. You must have some power, sure. I think that's the difference. That says the difference because it's doing all the time. Well, no, I don't. They claim that many people claim they've been cured. So I mean, uh, it can't. A lot of people have become more enlightened altogether today. They don't believe in that class of stuff at all. If you would, if you had, we'll say, a disease there now, which would you prefer to go to, the quack or the doctor? Which would you go to first, anyhow? Well, if you were ill, would you go to the quack or to the doctor? John Hanlon's question is one that most of us would have no difficulty in answering. And yet in Ireland there are many rational, intelligent people who, in certain circumstances, would take the complaint first to the non-professional. And there are even more who, having first tried the doctor without apparent success, would, as a kind of last resort, go to the unqualified person who is supposed to have the cure. People in this second category may be found almost anywhere throughout the country. Well, I took this rash on my face, as I thought it was only a rash, and I went to the doctor, my local doctor. 
He told me it was uh, dermatitis. I kept going for about twice a week for about three weeks or a fortnight or three weeks. And uh, a lot of people were telling me, local people were telling me that it must have been shingles. So I said to the doctor this day, it might be shingles, doctor, that I have. Oh, he said, not at all, it's just a bad dose of dermatitis. So he was giving me prescriptions and prescriptions for the yet. So some of the local lads about the town told me I was a fool, that I should go out to Kiwi Drum that has the cure. So I just went down to the creamery, the co-op, and got me unsalted butter. I was told I couldn't go out with butter, unsalted butter. And went out to Kiwi and he asked me, he said, you're a very bad case with them. And he asked me, did the doctor send me out? I said, no, I came out on my own. So he took the butter from me and went up to the room and he spent about a quarter of an hour preparing it. And then he called me up to the room and he rubbed me all up and down the side of my face with this butter. Had it from the top of my head to the point of my chin. And he rubbed and he rubbed and he rubbed, I suppose, for ten minutes at me. I thought I'd have fell before he was finished. Anyway, he said that was do, and he gave me a drink of Lucozade. And I went out, and when I, before I went out, I said to him, it'll be a long time till I shave that face, give me. This was on a Tuesday. No, he says that you could happen to shave it on Sunday. And I shaved it on Monday, and I went ahead after that, and wasn't a thing on me. Huey Drum from near Kilachandra in County Cavan, who worked that cure for shingles, is well over 80 years of age and is now an invalid. He told us how he makes the cure. Well, you see, you get a bit of own salt and water and I'd drop a few drops of blood in it and give it to you, and off you went and rub it. It was as right as rain, hadn't come back. So Father Kelly, when he come here, he wouldn't give in to it at all, and no time he come yeah. here for a niece of his own. And Father Kelly, there was some children here. So that's the whole mystery of it. But there were so many coming you couldn't stick up to it, you know. Well, it's a very painful disease, Ah, the it's a terrible lot, you know. It gets so sore, the same as it wasn't, you know. And they hadn't hope in the world, you know, until that was cured, you see, because it's going to keep scourging you all and you go off your head. But once that was rubbed, you were finished. No trouble was anymore. Was there anything special in the rub? Oh, not a thing. Only a drop of my blood, that's all. You had a prayer? None taught him what to do. He had to say the prayer, of course. But, I mean, uh, your own blood used in it? Used in it, and that's all they do. Mix it up and rub it down in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Well, did you ever hear or find out yourself why there should be anything special in your own blood? Ah, well, of course, the things chill born with gifts, you know, and then you get people to was able to incense into how it was done and all that, I suppose, that was before my time. The use of his own blood by the healer is a very ancient practice dating back to pagan times. Probably because of its origin, the old Anglo-Saxon penitentials forbade it, but it is still known as a cure for erysipelas and other skin infection, and in County Kildare is particularly associated with a certain Kyo family near Two Mile House. Huey Drummond Cavan makes no secret of the bloodletting, but the patient does not see the ritual. He closed the door in the room and uh, he didn't let me up while he was preparing the butter, but uh, when I gave him the butter it was white butter and when I went up the room he had it on a plate, portion of it on a plate, and it was pink. 
Well, you have an idea I have an idea, but I'm told that he pricked his finger and let blood drop into it and mixed it up. That's what I heard now from locals, that that was the cure. Well, but I believe he has done a huge number of cures. Terrible lot of cures. He, cured, he has cured hundreds of people. So even in about two years after, I know a girl in Kilishandra here that came to me one night in the pub and asked me, she says, tell me about that cure you got done. So I told her, and she said she had them, but it was round her body. So I said, go out at once to Kiwi. And she went out the next day, and she was better in a week. So the word of mouth goes around. Yes, the word, oh, everyone knows about Kiwi Drone. Dr. Patrick Logan, author of Making the Cure, a Look at Irish Folk Medicine, lists a number of different cures for shingles, including another one of very ancient origin, the fasting spit. But the real cure, he thinks, is different. I know all about shingles, and I tell you how I know all about shingles. I've had them myself. And it's all very fine to read in a medical textbook that the pain of shingles is severe, but until you've had it, you just don't know how severe it is. Well... I got this pain in my chest and um, I was very, very worried about it. I wasn't saying anything to my wife or anybody else, but when I got her out in the morning, I went to the phone and got two people to come over and bring an ECG to uh, do an electrocardiograph because I was wondering had I that unpleasant disease. However, that was normal. And two days later, out came the spots. I knew what I had the blisters. I had the shingles. So I also knew that by the time the spots and the blisters came out, the pain was getting less. Now, that is the secret of all the cures of shingles. Because when uh, uh, the diagnosis is made, and it can't be made until the spots come out, then uh, the pain is getting less. So any treatment you apply, such as rubbing it with uh, a marriage ring or rubbing the blood of a ferret on it. it. All those methods of treatment have to be carried out every day for nine days. By the nine days, uh, by the time the nine days are up, the pain has gone and the blisters are drying up and the patient is getting better. None of these things have any effect on the shingles themselves, but they all come in, as it were, when the improvement is set in and the patient is on the way to recovery. John Liston from Johnstown in County Kilkenny includes shingles and erysipelas, or wildfire, among the many cures he can make. There is probably a connection between his versatility and the simplicity of the methods employed. That's the prayer, mostly. the prayer. Wave my hand, just wave your hand. But if people weren't there to come to you, you could cure them for a while. For what now, for example? Well, if anyone was bleeding or anything, you stop it. Inside or outside. Internal. Anyway, you can cure them. Jesus of Nazareth, born in the stable of Bethlehem, do by the power of divinity, stop this blood. That's all. Stop immediately. And you just put your hand on him and say Well, if they were near enough, you could put your hand on him. He wasn't someone far away if they can't can cure him just to say. But for what? Tethers and wildfire and shingles and that, you'd have to... person would have to come to you three times. Would you do the same thing for shingles as you do for the nose bleeding, for example? No. Shingles and the tethers. Different thing altogether. The nose bleeding is only a prayer. What would you do for the shingles? 
Oh, you have to. It's a prayer mostly again. The small bit of treatment are right? so just a matter of getting the people further forget about it. So much remind them of a small little penance you put on it. Is it an ointment you use for the shingles? No, not necessarily. It's the prayer that cures them. I might tell them to rub ointment to it. Zinc ointment, I generally tell them to put something cheap. But the cure is not, in fact, in the ointment. It's no, in if the I tell them to rub codeine, codeine does it cure them as well. Yeah. And in fact, codeine <laughs> is. <laughs> And cow dung is, in fact, used in some cures or... I know that, dung, too. Isn't that yeah. Have you yeah. heard of anything like that? I heard of it, are What would it cure? Or how would you use it? How to cure the tetras, too. The cattle. Because it would seal them. And it would seal them, it would cure them. Anything that would seal it up? It would. It would cure it. It would cure it. Yeah, take the life out of them. Hemorrhage, nosebleeding in particular, is also among the afflictions which Huey Drum claims he can cure. And again, the method is simple. Oh, I could stop that now if you were bleeding up on that middle of the cross there and I'd know your name. They'd never go near you. There's a prayer you used to say. <laughs> that meant a bit, uh, something. You said a certain prayer? Yeah. Could yeah, you tell well. us, what did you say it uh, out loud? Oh, I could say it as loud as, as, loud as I like. Oh. Could you say it for us now? Oh, I could say it. When Jesus was born and baptised in the and the river Jordan, when Jesus came to the water, the water was clear and the water was good. Jesus commanded them. And the blood, and that's all that you have got to do. You haven't to touch the person at all. What were the other cures you mentioned oh, there? Oh, there was ones for burns, you see, like that. What would you do for the burns? Oh, of course, I could, I could do a room for them too, you know. Well, that would be included, of course, nearly to an extent, as well as the hemorrhage, you know. Oh, you would they, say the same could, prayer, uh, would you? Oh, I know. I could lick the barn and it, it, it was finished. Mm. You'd lick the barn? Mm. Well, how did you get the cures? Oh, you said. no, it was handed down. <laughs> your father had them? Well, he hadn't. Or your mother? Oh, some of the family had it anyway, you know. I thought some of them said that they wouldn't get for the very few, and they know all dead, of course. No, well, the, the thing about the burns, uh, this apparently was a common thing. People who had the cure would yeah. lick the burn. Lick the burn, yeah. Well, Did that take some of the poison or some well, of the I harm out of it? I took the whole soreness out of it. It withered away after that, dried up, you know. took the whole pain out of it. That wasn't a hard job to do, to lick it. Burns, I'll tell you. Uh, when I came back to my native little town, in the glory of a newly qualified as a newly qualified, newly acquired MB. Uh, I was minding the house at home, and somebody came looking for my mother. And uh, he knew I was qualified, he knew I was a doctor, but it was my mother he was looking for. And when the family arrived home, uh, he wanted some of her burn cure. Her burn cure consisted of a mixture of sheep's fat, four parts, uh, beeswax, one part, smoothly um, heated and blended together smoothly and made up in uh, bandages, made like plaster of Paris bandages. That's put on the wound, on the burn, and it's covered up and left for the ritual nine or ten days. Uh, when it's taken off, the wound is, or the burn is cured. And the reason for this is no virtue in the beeswax or in the sheep suet. It's an airtight seal that prevents the uh, raw surface being secondarily infected, which is the real problem in a burn.
A sprain is a rather vague diagnosis even in orthodox medicine. In folk medicine, it's vaguer still, but cures are common. And I had one performed on myself in Glangevlin County Cavan some time ago by 82-year-old Michael Dolan. A strain at the heart, or any strain I could cure. Is that so? Aye. Any well, strain. No, I, have a, I have a strain in my right hand there now. Could you do anything with that? I could, but not the day is what day? Monday. God, the day is the day for making. Monday and Thursday. So you could do something with it? I don't know. There now in the, in the wrist. Does it look all right? No. What do you think of it now? It's not as good as the other hand, anyway. You want to try the other one now? Ah, no. Yeah, that one is different. Do you think, is there anything broken in it? There is. There's something broke here. Oh, it's not broke. It's what... uh, Strained? It's what is strained or puffed. Why are you you with a doctor? No, but I think I should go to one. <coughs> you can't do something with it now. Well, if you go to a doctor, I'll do nothing for you. But I'll make the cure of it. I have to... There's a good many prayers. Where is me bathed, man? You should know yourself, sir. Well, uh, hold on now. We have to get the beads. I have the window. I have the window. Give them to me. Oh, have you to say a few prayers, Mickey? Aye. You say a prayer too, you'd say. Fair enough. One any any fa- particular one? There is. You'll have to say one hour further to the blessed prayer. You can, can't be... These can't be listening to you. No, we won't you, you, don't you people listen okay. there. You'll have to say them out loud, Mickey. No. 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 Well, maybe if we say them out loud, they, they, they're say, gone out. Say father, you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And after a lot of silent prayers, Michael Dolan told us about another part of the cure. If you if you weren't here, I could make it on a thread. Seven seven knots on the thread. I meant now the cure of the strain of the heart not a week ago for a, a fellow in black line. He was crippled with rheumatism or uh, arthritis. And God, he tells me that he can walk without a shtick, fly without a shtick. And you could do this for this strain that I have in the wrist, even though I'm I, not here. Is it, as long as I made it for you. I know. If I can give you a strain and thread that you'll tie around your rust and put it on in the name of the Blessed Virgin and St. Martin and uh, say they were Father, and that's all. And leave it on your hand. In the name of the Blessed Virgin and Saint Say Martin. Say on to cure your strain, and it'll it'll get better. But don't go to a doctor. I'll leave it someplace. Where'll I leave it? Yeah. I'll leave it in the Glen pub. For That's the very thing. evening, please God. Another person from County Cavan who has a cure for sprain is Miss Margaret Miles from near Kilachandra, and we met her and one of the patients she has treated. Like Mickey Dolan, she doesn't say the prayer for healing out loud, but she did tell us how she makes the cure. I, I, I rub it the way the blood flows, whatever way the, down to the... If it's in the ankle, I rub the, it down to the toenails, the way the blood flows down. 
And um, then I say this prayer nine times. Do you say it out loud? No, I say it to myself. And I, I rub it and I make the sign of the cross each time on the part affected. So inside of nine days, they'll get better. And if it's, they have to bathe it in, in hot water, good hot water, and a bandage for support for some days. But it's always inside. In fact, the doctor sent them here, do you know, time and again, that he could do nothing for them. And it always works for you. Oh, yes, it does, yeah. You have numerous it, people around it. Yeah, if, who, if it's a sprain. Got, yeah, got the cure. Yeah, yeah, plenty of people. If it's a sprain, it really always works. Mm. Oh, I went out on my ankle quite suddenly in the yard, and I, I couldn't I absolutely put it, my foot under me. <laughs> um, in fact, when I, w I went straight away, when I heard about this Miss Smiles who did the cure, I went straight away, even to get from the car to the house was quite an effort, you know. And she, I had it bandaged, she took the bandage off and told me to leave it off at night. She put her hands along my ankle and she said some prayers. She told me it would be all right. It, in two days it was practically back to normal. It was really very, you know, I was crippled. I couldn't put my foot to the ground. I was, I was amazed. Was there it a bone so out of place or anything well, like that? Well, I, I would say so because I, I really couldn't put any pressure on it at all. I had to crawl up the stairs to bed that well, that night. I, I really went up on my knees up the stairs. And you never had any trouble with it since, had you? No, it never, it never bothered me since. No. It was genuinely cured. It was genuinely cured. In two days now, I'd say that I was walking normally. <laughs> If we didn't get the actual prayer to cure the sprain in County Cavan, we did get it in the neighbouring county, Leitrim, but under strict injunction not to divulge the name of the curer. And I got from my name, Mr. Dan McGuire from Drumdiffa, out the road there from Drumcowler, about Drumdiffa. Mm -hmm. And right. how did you get it? How did you come to well, get the my cure? My mother I fell on the, at, the, at the door outside the street and she sprained her arm. And I didn't have it at that time, so this man, I knew he had it. So I was out, sent out word for, for him to come in. And he asked him would he come in to make the cure for my mother. So he said he would. He says, it would be too far, he says, for your mother to go out. And he says, it would be too far for me to walk in. So he says, if you like, lady, he says, I'll give you the cure. I said, wouldn't mind taking it. I said, I'd be delighted to get it, thanks very much, but wouldn't know how to, to perform it. So he told me that, uh, what to do. And then he wrote out the prayer for me to say. So I... That's and have you I, got the prayer? I have got the prayer. So I'll see what like to know, I'll say the prayer for you. As Jesus was walking one day over Maury Hills in Hedley Mountains, his false foot slipped. He took his false foot. He put blood to blood. He put flesh to flesh. He put bone to bone and he put sinew to sinew. And he put all together in the name of Jesus. Three Hail Marys and under the saint makes the cure of the sprain. But do I have to say the prayer? There's more of the prayer, is there? No, that's all. That's the, that's mm. the prayer? Yeah. Well, and then, then you have to bear to send the cross three times, name the three Hail Marys on the same mix, cure the sprain, and name the Father of the Son, the Holy Ghost, men three times. But you have to make that three times, 
when the person comes, you have to make it three times when they, while they're with you. And then they come back Mondays and Thursdays for three successive times. You understand me now? I understand that, yeah. No, you'd have to come back today, and you'd have to come back on Thursday, and you'd have to come back again on Monday, but that's complete. And no other it. days would do, would no, it? Well, it would, it would, would. but that, they're really at the hand of their Mondays and Thursdays. But I often met at 12 o'clock at night for people. And you'd have hundreds of people, would you, coming in I, a year? Well, I wouldn't have hundreds, but I have quite a crowd now, and I have quite a lot of them for hundreds of people since I got it. And I'm sure that's over 30 years ago. And why do you think it works for you in particular? Well, I don't know. Anyone ever I met a it was all successful for them. The prayers or invocations used in folk cures are not in fact as secret as some of the healers believe. They are to be found in some of the oldest Irish manuscripts, and are often internationally known as well. The cure for sprain, for example, which we've just heard, is one such, and its Christian version is not the oldest. Dr Logan. The real study of folk medicine is this. See, what we call folk medicine is a mass of stuff today, and it's derived from last year's official medicine. See, when official medicine moves on and leaves something behind it, it's abolished, as it were, and leaves the doctor's surgery and is sent down to the kitchen, as it were. Well, uh, it means that what is now folk medicine is derived, as I say, from last year's official medicine or from the official medicine of 2,000 years ago. Let me give you an example of the medicine of 2,000 years ago that I saw practised in County Leitrim. A man got a sprain. Uh, somebody making the cure put the hand on the sprained wrist and said the following words. Christ was going over the mountain and his foal's foot he sprained. Down he got, touched the sprain and said, bone to bone, nerve to nerve, blood to blood and every sinew in its proper place. Now you would say that's an ordinary narrative cure made up by some pious 19th century uh, person. But in fact, it isn't. It's at least as old as paganism. At least it was here before St. Patrick came. And it was also among the pagan Germans, because there is a charm in almost exactly the same words in which Woden, the Norse god of healing, was used uh, to invoke, to heal the sprain. And also he cured the foals foot in the same way as our Lord was said to have. It's also found, a version of it is in the Lower Gabala. Mm. You know, the, the, when uh, Dean kicked, or uh, uh, hadn't half healed Nuda uh, uh, Argadlov's hand, but his son Miak came on and did a better job and cured it in the same, in, uh, with something the same words as the cure. That much folk medicine is based on mere superstition is acknowledged, but some of it shows an innate understanding of human psychology which official medicine is only now catching up with. Some of it is also well founded on knowledge and skills accumulated through the centuries. Bone setting, for example, is generally hereditary, and skill is acquired by watching a more experienced practitioner, usually of the same family, at work. Michael Gallagher of Balnamore in County Leitrim is only one of hundreds in Ireland who owes something to an expert bone setter. I broke my leg in 1948 and uh, playing football. And at that time, 
you wouldn't dream of going any other where except to the bone setter. And I went to Jimmy Teague, and uh, he was an old man that him. He set it, put it in plaster. I kept the plaster on for three weeks, took it off. The leg was a bit weak, but in another three weeks I was out and about again. That time you didn't go to have an X-ray. You went to the bone setter. Oh, as far as I know, I, he, it was always successful. Mm. Of course, the bone setter was a man who had a great deal of skill. Anyhow, acquired o over the years and from his people before him, usually. Well, of course, that was where his whole strength was. That he, from experience, he had. The, the feel of the bone, and he did know. I've no doubt at all about it. And I'd say that it was all as successful. He he put it back. It might be abused afterwards, uh, that uh, people mightn't just keep it in the right position and the like of that. But uh, at that time, he had such experience over generations, and uh, he was more than satisfactory. And I never knew of him to have uh, any uh, to do a job that didn't work. Jimmy Teague's bone setting tradition is now carried on by his daughter, Mrs. Pat Conboy of Ahavas in County Leitrim. She told us that bone setting in her family goes back to the penal days, when a priest with a broken leg was sheltered and cured in the house of a man named Donahue. Her grandmother, Anne Donahue, was a noted bone setter, and she herself learned the art from her father. I, I practised here, I mean, I helped him along here and saw what he was at from when I was a child and we all helped him while we were, there was seven or eight in family here, everybody helped or attended like a garden as somebody was wanted, you know, but I remained on here in the family home and it was, uh, it fell down to, into my hands then, like when he went. What I you, also have a sister now, Mrs mm. Redahan, that sets bones. So, uh, and and what you learned, it was just from actual experience from seeing your father do it. Yes, actual experience. I set my first bone when I was about eighteen years. It was a child's collarbone. So it was very successful. Father was in Lachterg when I done the job, and uh, the child was taken here for to be fixed. So I did it. Well, could you tell us now exactly what you would do in a case like that? Well, the first thing you examine the child and find out what was wrong, and uh, I found that the collarbone was broken. Next, I prepared the stuff that I used for setting it. For um, yeah, well, which is we say, which is it was uh, burgundy pitch, black. Well, that British, wouldn't mean much to me. Black now. British pitch, <laughs> black British pitch, burgundy pitch. And uh, dragon's blood. Well, you'd better explain those to <laughs> a layman like myself because I wouldn't. <laughs> well, um, they just made it uh, up into, they were all put into one uh, article and uh, compounded up and melted and um, made it, it was like coal back again until it made a plaster. Did you boil it? So put it on the fire to boil it, yeah. And uh, that melts out. And you really have to let it come back again, almost with solid, before you can pour it out upon material and make the plaster, like material, a patch of tweed, and uh, pour it out on it and make the plaster of it. 
And so. it would set hard, would it? Oh, it sets not real solid, but uh, an almost solid now. But uh, in the meantime, you get at the bone then and set it. And I got well, somebody... What does that involve? Do you have to manipulate it with your yes. hands? I got... Uh, the child's father, as a matter of fact, held the child by the body while I caught the arm up at the, the forearm here. And... Uh, or is this the forearm? <laughs> the upper arm. The upper arm. And... Uh, Near the shoulder. Yeah. I gave it a long, straight pull out. What would you call that? Right hand with the body. Out from... Straight out from the body. Straight out right from angles. the body, yeah. Mm. And I gave it a, two or three kind of sudden checks. And I could find the little bone slip back. Like, and then I chased it with my finger to see if the bone was in its place, that there wasn't a splinter or anything. And it just was there in its place. So I fixed back the arm in, in that shape in a square and then got my plaster and put it on. Bandaged it around the shoulder, made the figure eight around the shoulder with the bandage until I had it completely... the child completely straightened up, you know, just mm -hmm. that way, the figure eight bandage, like, so... Would, would you say any th any prayers or anything oh, at no the same prayers. time? No, it's just, no. Uh, it's just manipulation of the, yes. the arm and the, yeah. the bone. Yeah, mm. there wasn't, there is, it, 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 prayers, I think, uh, are uh, considered a cure, like with regards to uh, tradition anyway, I think that that was a traditional idea, like the prayers and I don't know about charms, I've never known about charms, but, but I think that was the idea that it, for cures mostly. Where it, but the it bone setting, it was a, a skillful operation. Skillful operation, yeah, and supposed to be handed down now from penal days. Like the bone setter, the healer who works with herbs usually has a lot of inherited knowledge also, and nowadays he may often make use of the facilities provided by the druggist and chemist. Walter Blair of Clodrum and County Cavan who, by the way, is a member of the Church of Ireland, has cures for quite a number of complaints. And they cures is cures for gallstone and kidney troubles and gallbladder troubles. And they also have cures for pains, which is tablets and makeup, and you take two or three each night for 14 or 15 nights for the cure if, if, the, if, if the pain is cured. Yeah. And what do you do for the other ones? Well, I put a new for the and I make a bottle. It's a hard bottle I use. I get the stuff from London, from Broom and Shimmers, Wholesale, Douglas and Herbalist. And I import the stuff twice a year. I consider the cost to make the bottles for these cures. And the dose per, the dose per, per, per day for the gallstones or kidney troubles is a small wine glass three times before meals. And th these things that you get... How did you come to know about them? How did you well, get the cures? Well, I got them from my mother. And she got them from an from old aunt named Tilda Catherine, way back, I suppose, a hundred years ago. And they still remain in the family from, from aunt to, what was it called, my mother, and then her son Walter has them now. There. And do you use herbs? Herbs. Herbs for, herbs for the kidney trouble and... I use stuff I buy in the chemist shop that I make up for the pile cures. And the herbs grow the herbs around the place here? Well, they did grow around the place at one time, 
but there was, they got done away with two cattle being let into the ground where they grew where I used to get them by in bundles and save it the same as they had in London. And cut, but they were about the way of getting it, they'd chop it up and send it in packages chopped up. I'd sing it, I'd show you the stuff, but I'll tell you the name before you go. It was chopped up and in what they call chopped up poem, yeah, packed into bags. There, there are certain trade secrets that hmm? you don't... There are trade secrets that you don't disclose. Well, there is, yes. There is, yeah. Listeners may have noticed that many of those possessing cures are reluctant to divulge what they regard as secrets of the trade. Henry Ryan, for example, another Church of Ireland man whom we met in Walter Blair's house, has a cure for ringworm. And even though he makes use of material available from a chemist, he prefers not to say what it is. It's just a rub. Nice, rub it nice and gentle. Oh, well, can you tell us what it's made of? The ingredients. Like to, I wouldn't like to tell you what it's made of. What's that, lad? But uh, it's a lotion, an ointment of some sort. It's a, yes, it's an ointment. You make it up. A mixture. Yes, yes. And do you get uh, do you get it in the chemist shop? You get it in the chemist. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you mix it yourself yes, then? Yes, yes. Oh, it went away to England. Perfect, oh, it's a perfect cure. And well, of course, the ringworm isn't as common now as it used to be, is oh, it, Henry? Oh, no, 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 no. It was eight years and years ago. We run out of polish tins, you know. We used to put in polish tins and <laughs> put in matchboxes. Uh, well, of course, it's it's more or less under control now, and I suppose more That's and right. more people go to vets and doctors. And well, the doctor, Dr McManus now, he used to send dozens to it. He said he couldn't do a hit for them. Come down to it, it for the cure. It's a perfect cure, is a claim most of the healers would make in maybe 90 cases out of 100. The doctors would argue that in the great majority of these cases, the ailment would get better anyhow. They would agree that the ritual involved in many of the cures is good psychology and reassuring to the patient, and that belief in the cure is all important. If people have faith in a cure, there's an air of mystery about it. There's an air of magic about it. There's an air of supernatural power about it. See, it isn't it far better to let them get the benefit of that, which must be a very considerable benefit. After all, uh, I'd much rather be treated uh, by the family doctor in 95 cases out of 100, or the old than a technician be injected with an antibiotic by a very highly qualified technician who just gave me the injection and went off about his business. There was no sympathy in that. So whatever its origins, pagan or Christian, whatever its basis in the medicine of the past, whatever it possesses of accumulated knowledge or layers of superstition, folk medicine, like official medicine, comes down fundamentally to a question of confidence. Professionals and non-professionals alike seem to be agreed on that. These rashes and things in people and wildfire and shingles, they're all nervous. And why they believe, if they believe that you're going to cure them, they will get cured. It's their own belief. It's the studying of the nerves that cures all these things. It's just any supernatural power. Yes, exactly. It's all in the mind. So that if you can reassure the patient... If they have confidence... It's part of the cure... Tis the whole lot of it. The whole lot of it. Yeah, tis the cure. When uh, our blessed Virgin was crossing the River Jordan, she trained her ass's foot and killed it. And our Lord come along and it is what he is saying. 
I make the children on the same the children for this train or lynch. She blessed herself and it is uh, blood to blood, bone to bone, and everything uh, and muscle back to its own place. In honor of the Saint of Cures, it is now. And she rubbed her hands down upon the asses. What were you saying? Mm -hmm. And it's all that cure, that's the cure of the range. Mm -hmm. My father used to do this thing as a, a preventive for black leg. So it's garlic. It's grew like uh, onions, like you know, seed onions. And he had a he got a bottle, a, a mixture from the chemist, Friars Balsam, they call it. He cut up this in this just as a door say strips of onions, you know. And mix it all up in an old tin. You come along and you get up, right up the base tail, the little ligament knife, ligament knife. And uh, got this little cloth and steps up to the horse. The blood has to be brought. And he stepped up this little message, this little, you know, a little parcel, up to the horse and left stand there for 24 hours. It had to be sold all around it. Uh, it had to be tied or stopped on, right under the tail. Right under the tail. Left stand there for 24 hours. No black leg anymore then. I make it on a string. I wasn't going to hand cattle because I'm afraid of cattle. I make it on a string, like a bit of wool. And then I make it left, and I know that the, the wall will go around the, the animal's foot or body, whatever part of them is affected. And uh, that's what tied around the animal. Just a piece uh, of string? A piece of a carved wool, you know. Wool? No, I didn't Would there be wool. knots or anything on no, it? Knots, no, no you knots. You could put knots if you wanted, but I never use knots. Mm -hmm. And then you can tie that around the animal's foot or around the body, whatever part the, uh, the animal is affected. And then leave it on, then and take it off, then I bring it back, and I'd make it again, like on, on the Monday or Thursday, and then leave it on and bring it back again. And the animal, I met a full animal that fell out in that street, it was knocked down with a car. And the man that knocked him down had to pay the man, but I owned the, cat, the cow, for the, the price of the cow. And he said to me, Mary, he says, would you ever make the cure this bread for the cow? I say, I will. So I made a cure the spring and the cow was uh, brought up to a field and left in the field and he sold the cow again and he made money on the cow. Lameless, whatever the beast left his foot on the ground, you dig out the sand and turn it upside down, put the sounds across and the next time you see that beast is all right. Perfect. Never see it to fail. Why do you think that is? Why does it work, do you think? It's a challenge, boy. You think it's all in the prayer th that you say? No, I haven't said any prayer for that. No prayer at all? No. So, you can cut it with your penknife if you hadn't a spade or anything. And I haven't kicked him up in my toe. Kick him up the toe of your bowl. Put the sand across him. Go away and forget about him. I'll like the next time you see him. Never see it fair. The point about the red flannel is this. It's believed, or was believed, in ancient Irish mythology to expel demons... So when the red flannel was put on, it expelled the demons of the pain or of the backache or whatever you had it. You'd notice in cows a, a piece of red cloth tied down the cow's tail. That protected the cow from the fairies or the evil eye or multitudes of other diseases or black leg. You could also tie a piece of red thread through the dewlap of the cow. Or even if you had a sprain yourself, you could get a red thread and tie it around it. And that would certainly uh, cure the sprain. At least it would 
cure it as well as a lot of other things. Because the spleen would probably get better anyway. But the red flannel would certainly be a great help. But of course, all these things are solely due to the colour. Uh, you can even stretch the red a bit. You could get a piece of copper wire and put that through the dewlap of a cow and that in its turn would cure uh, uh, black leg and uh, a lot of other diseases in the cows. But the main reason for, for it, if you could call it a reason, I don't think you could, but after all, if you had a vague backache, it's going to get better anyway. But if the red flannel is put on and the back gets better, you one thing follows the other and you'll give the credit to the red flannel. Dr Patrick Logan on the virtues of red flannel and of the colour red in general in Irish folk cures for animals. But as we've just heard, the red flannel is only one of innumerable materials used in making a cure. Here's another example from Dr Logan's own area, Balnamore in County Leitrim. For the foot rot. Foot rot in... Well, you won't take a record or... Yeah, in, in sheep, isn't it? Or cattle. Or cattle. Cattle or sheep. Yeah. yeah. Well, cattle or sheep. Is well, that a common thing around here? Oh, it's all over. I, uh, often this cure and one of the same to cure it. For such a man's best, that's naming who owns the best. Do you see? Mm-hmm. Or the colour of her. To cure the foot rot. Would you have to see it? You have, the you animal. have to, to see it. But would you have the animal beside you when you be no. doing it? No, you needn't have be, the animal there. It would be in America. Yes. Well, uh, then you cut tin herbs, tin dandelions, with a black handle knife, and just lay them where they're cut. Nine of them. Lay them where you cut them. Bring away the tent one. And send it to the man that has the animals with the foot rot and he rubs it down, not up, round about. And rub it in the hills where it's taken and bury it. And all's over. That's the cure. That's the cure. And there are cures even simpler still. A man's word may be enough. I had a public house in Gold and I was busy the same day and a man came up to me and he had two horses uh, turned down the field, you see, lying down the field, he couldn't get up. He got all the men alone trying to lift him, but he couldn't lift up anything like that. They're so heavy and they're helpless, something. And he, they were, they were his livelihood, if you like. And he came up to me crying. I go home, so I haven't had to go and see but the horse will be all right. And before he was home, the two were up. So, walking around the field, all the men idle looking around. But you have no idea, Jim, why they went down? No, I have no idea why they went down, no, no, no. So, I mean, in actual fact, it could have been a colleague or something that they got. Well, very likely, very unlikely, the two of them to get together. And they, they well, were down I for a consistent... I agree with you now, Jim. I mean, if the two horses were grazing in the same field and eating the maybe, same material, maybe. the chances are that the two of them would get the colleague the one time. Maybe. And the chances are that the colic would pass over eventually and that the two horses would get up. Yeah, now, I mean, there's this a possibility is, of that. This uh, is my version of, yeah, of what yeah, would happen. Yeah, like, yeah. No, I mean, I, I know that you prefer to believe your version. I know, but... Uh, but um, I don't know, but... Uh, all I can say is that 
I taught him in good faith, I'll go home. I'll be down to you tomorrow. I'll make your mind easy. Your horses will be okay. And you got all the neighbors. It's a fair statement, mind you. It's a statement that I won't make every other day. A cure, as seen by the man who claims to have made it, and a vet's version of the case. Today, the vet's diagnosis is the one which more and more farmers throughout the country would be inclined to accept. Cures like those we've just heard about are not so much resorted to nowadays as they used to be. For one thing, the horse is much less common on Irish farms. And for another, the modern farmer is generally pretty well informed on orthodox veterinary treatment. In fact, only the older generation now is likely to remember the days when someone other than a qualified vet might be called to treat a sick animal. Billy Williams of Glenacona, Ballyporeen in Tipperary. Vets were very scarce in my time. One in every, maybe in every county. <clears throat> is that one reason why the vet is called on more often now that there are more of them and uh, it's easier to get them? Well, the vet is needed more now than he was then because the cattle are delicate, more, they are delicate now. Not as healthy as they were in the old days. Different methods of feeding, different food. Uh, they had more natural food in my day. And it was a rare case to have a stick out. Their diseases had now that was never before had. And they only spend the money for nothing. Because they're trying to get rid of a disease and this way they're spreading it there. Well, what sort of diseases would there be now that there wouldn't be in the old days? Well, TB wouldn't. Or brucellosis wasn't much in my day. Um, but maybe the, maybe it was there, they just didn't know about it, or they called it something else. Well, the, cow, <coughs> the cows remained with the farmer. He had a full head all the time. Now they're changed every two years, every six months. What's not wrong with him today, they'll find it wrong with him tomorrow. It's only all, uh, all the money. Again. <laughs> <laughs> And veterinary medicine is indeed these days very much a question of money and of economics. The value of most animals on the Irish farm has increased enormously compared with 30 or 40 years ago, and it's now good business to call in the vet when necessary. Michael Gallagher from Ballinamore in County Leitrim. Well, the, the animal uh, became very dear, and, and uh, the handiest way to get an animal cured now is with the vet, because he has the antibiotics and uh, while the vet might often be referred to as deer you start him off with a, a couple of pounds but he doesn't really have the couple of pounds because uh, the injection that he gives your beast uh, has cost so much money I don't know how much some of them are dearer than others and the like of that but you give him two pounds three pounds four pounds doesn't matter how much it may sound money given out for nothing at the time but you must remember that in a mo few months from that time you might be selling that we animal for a hundred or a better one, two hundred pounds. So you see, it's not lost money at all. He's the most valuable man the farmer has. And the old-time farmer, of course, set the value of the beast, which was very little in a lot of cases, against what he'd have to pay a vet. 
Well, I, I, no, I think even yet I can get the vet out to my house a couple of miles there for uh, two guineas, roughly. And uh, long ago, if you were to get a vet, uh, there was no local vet, and you had to get him a long journey. It was two guineas. It was two guineas in, in between 30 and 1930 and 1940. And uh, a, a calf... I remember being with, out with my father one time and we sold the calf for seven and six. So it wouldn't make sense getting a vet at two guineas. I do remember to see seven calves born in the spring of uh, around 1936 or 37. And every one of them died. And the price of the whole lot of them together would hardly have paid the vet for one or two calls. What sort of things uh, are cured in animals nowadays? Well, of course, there are a lot of farmers that are great general knowledge of diseases and things like that. And uh, there are various things like colleagues, uh, skull and the foot, foot rot is, the, I'd say, the modern name. La Shibula, they called it long ago. And uh, there was a cure made for that, but you'd uh, just want a good imagination to know that it would cure. But then it did cure. A lot of people will tell you it did. I never saw it actually working on a beast. In the old days, many animal cures were performed by the blacksmith or farrier. And Sir Jonah Barrington, in his personal sketches published in the early part of the last century, says that the farriers and old women performed, either on man or beast, 20 cures for one achieved by the doctors and apothecaries. Well, one blacksmith I met about eight years ago near Carrickmacross claimed that every blacksmith had seven cures of right, and he himself had remedies for rickets, erysipelas and chilblains. These powers probably derived in the folk mind from the farrier's obvious control over such elements as fire and metals. However, the last blacksmith I met, John Hanlon of Ballyporeen, made no such claims. But then he's only a part-time farrier. Well, they claim it was something that was transmitted to them, but I wouldn't believe that. I'd say they weren't any chance in their arms. Because, like, when there weren't any vets there, they had to try something. They had they used to dope horses, and the tangler, the travelling people used to dope horses and sell them, and, like, because the man was saying there a minute ago. But otherwise, well, apart from that, they had cures for, for ring bones and side bones and navicular disease and lots of diseases like that they had cures all right for them. Did you ever see any of these cures being wrought, as they say? No, and I see horses fired and, and blistered. And what would they do that for? Well, if you see a horse would, would uh, be after an injury, you know, like they'd blister him, you know, or horse with ring bones or side bones, they'd blister him, you know. Or they'd fire him with irons, like, you know, down the... Where they'd uh, sand cracks now, they'd fire him, you know, would, would burn him with an iron, you know, up the, side, up the side of the foot, the hoof, like, up the side of the hoof. Wouldn't you think that would do more harm than good? Oh, no, no. It would uh, actually it would, uh, it would encourage the growth above the coronet where the, where the, the crack started between the hair and the whole flake, you know. And if they were selling them, then, then wouldn't oh, well, they uh, disguise that, They'd cover it up somehow? Well, you could cover it up all right, but, uh, well, really, after about, to grow down after six weeks, anyhow, it's self like when to start to grow. You know, the foot would grow way down and the crack would grow away with it. And the, the, the old... The overgrowth in was being pared away all the time, so therefore you had to crack down like in you know, about six weeks to two months. Nowadays, even the travelling people have become mechanised and don't have the number of horses they used to. But they, like the farriers, were skilled in horse doctoring 
and in particular they had the reputation of being able to make a broken down horse belie his looks. Billy Williams. The right horse tangler, he could sell you as quite an animal here now and guaranteed to be the quietest animal in South Prairie or in, in Ireland. And in 24 hours from now he could uh, take your, kick you out of the house, eat you. <laughs> well, how would he do that? Well, <laughs> Devilman, you were speaking about a charm, but I suppose he had a, cha a charm got from the devil or someone. <laughs> <laughs> well, that means they'd file the teeth, wouldn't they, for one thing? Oh, that was. Make them look younger. Get e would it be easier for them to chew their food, make them look young and, and uh, different stuff to give them and make a horse? A 20-year-old horse, they could make him look a five-year-old. But how did they do it? What did they actually do with him? Oh, they had a mixture of ginger and... Um, they'd give him a good drink of poutine. They treated him at, at both ends, so to speak. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And um, what one worked in... in, in the front of the work in the rear, and they... Uh, he, <laughs> so that he, uh, the ginger made him restless, wasn't that the oh, idea? Restless. Mm, so that he'd, he'd be lively looking. Yeah, and mad for work, you think. Sir Jonah Barrington, in his remarks on the farriers, which we mentioned earlier, also reflected that, as a man is only a mechanical animal, and a horse one of the same description, there was no reason why a drug that was good for a pampered gelding might not also be good for the hard-goer mounted on him. The converse of that is certainly true in the case of the folk cure. John Liston of Johnstown, County Kilkenny, has many cures for the human being. Most of them work also for animals, for Farsi and horses, for example. Yes, that's the same. They work on the humans. The prayer again. Leave your hand on them. And you'd use some ointment as well? No ointment. No again. ointment. Holy water, all the same. Must be used in all the cures. Well, uh, what about lameness in horses now? What would you do for a lame horse? Well, it's as far as you generally that have, you know, when you leave your hand in them. The mark of your fingers are staying in it. Paddy Norton, you heard of a cure for Farsi too, did you? Yes, I did hear of a cure for Farsi. I see it worked, I didn't hear it, but I see it worked. I, I see one man used to cure a wood prayer. He cured about seven or eight horses in my place, you know, during my time. And I see another fellow, he was cured with woodbine, in the woodbine in the horse's breast. He'd make the sign of the cross, I think, putting it in. And that's right. Yeah. And they definitely was a cure. And I see, and I remember one time, there was a male that a vis was attending. There was a vis here present, sir. So I'm talking in him. <laughs> and she was failing on him. And he, this fellow came and he said the prayer and cured her. That's true now. There's no lie in that. And the cure worked sometimes where the vet had failed, is that yes, true? Yes, I did. I did. I did. I see a few cases now where the vet failed and a, and a hospital stifled giant. But I thought myself I was being in torments one evening and she stopped. I opened a throng and I struck her. She had a big load of torments on her. She fell down. She fell back. And the load of torments on top of her. God, when she got up, she was a solid cripple. 
but if it came to any of them to do her no good. And I went over to a fellow, Jim Russell, beyond in mine, you all know him. Yeah. And because Jim came, and he was in the stifle giant, and the horse he couldn't go into her in the stable, she was kicking and she was terrible wild, and he said some prayer and he go in. He could do what he liked to the horse, but he cured the horse anyhow. And in a week after, the horse was working. With the farm horse virtually gone from the scene, attention now tends to be lavished on the racing thoroughbred and the hunter, generally through the vet, of course, as far as medicine goes. But in hunting and racing country, the man with the cure may still be called on, often as a last resort. Jim Carew lives at Knockgraffin near Kerr in County Tipperary. We visited him in the company of a vet, Colum Flynn, and we sought to probe the mystery of some of his cures. Well, that's a secret of my own, like what I do for them. And you can't divulge that. But I, I have to see the horse. I have to lay my hands on the horse. After that, the horse is healed. But you'd have to know what was wrong with him first, wouldn't you? Yeah, I'd uh, diagnose that immediately. And perhaps the people that come to me know what's wrong with the horse themselves as well. There's no question of anything else wrong. It is usually the one thing wrong. If they well, came to you, of course, it would usually be a swelling, wouldn't it? Or quite so, yeah. yeah. It, your cure is mostly associated with swellings in it the neck or swellings in the abdomen or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's usually called farsi, is that right, Jim? It's the name I know as. Well, could you describe what it's like? It's, uh, it is swellings, as it is. Columbus says. And there's uh, three kinds of it there. There's the belly, get along the belly. And there's the giant, get along the hawk. Mm. And there's button. Uh, buttons, lumps that appear all along the body everywhere, up along the back everywhere. Uh, buttons is known as. Uh, kind of knobs rise along the flank of the horse. Now. And you know from experience what, mm. what these different things are? I do indeed, yeah. Would you come across other things now that wouldn't be Farsi? I have done. And I'll tell you, I've cured it in good uh, cattle, which is perhaps not known now. What would you cure in cattle? It looks the same thing as the horse. A big swelling anywhere, the back or under the belly. As a matter of fact, uh, only about a year ago, a uh, prize bull that cost uh, f- 500 guineas. And he got this thing, a big swelling. And the man that owned him, he suddenly thought that I might be able to do something for me after trying and failing to get him right. And he got all right overnight. Well, so most of the animals you treat would be cured? I'd say all, yeah. All of them? And what have you got now that the vet hasn't got? What do you think you can do that the I vet can't do? I couldn't tell you that now. The vet is a different man to me altogether. I got this handed over from my father. It is a prayer. No veterinary skill attached to me at all whatsoever. And you can you say anything, that... Sorry, do you do anything other than the prayer? Uh, I mean, without divulging what you do do, I mean... Uh, I might do. If I saw a lot of puss, I'd give it a part of a knife. To, to release uh, a puss, if I like. 
And can you divulge the prayer that you say? No. It's a trade secret too. It is. Do you remember when you started first, the very first I job do. you ever did? I do indeed. And I tell her, I went down to my father who was in his dying bed. And he told me, he gave me the prayer. He knew the man that was coming to me, coming to him for like dying. And I would have to remember it. I remember I was trying to what I had written down now. I was trying to mutter the way it was in Irish language, you know, it is. And I wasn't so conversant with Irish, if you like. But anyway, I, I can remember the horse and the man and everything. I killed him anyway. And that's a long time ago, no? I'm fed with dying. You said the Irish. Well, that would mean that it's going back a bit then, is it? Did your father, you don't know if your father got it from somebody else? Oh, he did. He did, yeah. From, from his, his father? From his father. From his father, yeah, yeah. Have you any idea how many generations it goes back, Jim? Well, I've only three. I've only three. I don't know anymore. Mm. Well, now, the fact that the prayer was in Irish, too, would, in a way, uh, convince one that it was a sort of secret, too, you know? Well... A sort of secret language, even even in Tipperary, the, the Irish language... Well, you could nearly take it that <laughs> the person that owned the horse wouldn't know what you would be saying, either. No. But of course. Would you, would you say no. the prayer out loud when you're no, sure no, 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 secretly myself. No, no, no. Mm. So it wouldn't really matter whether it was Irish nobody English, would know Latin or anything else. Nobody would know anything what I'm doing. No, no, no. Did you no. ever hear of a prayer to stop the uh, stop bleeding from the horning? My, my father had the cure for stopping bleeding, and, and he wouldn't able to give it to me. And was it a prayer or was it something else? Same did? thing as Same. maybe what I have, if you like. Yeah. He's on his uh, deathbed. And if a hostel bleeding today, or a man bleeding today, in, in Belfast, he could heal him from here. From here to Belfast. From here to anywhere, if you like. Mm-hmm. He was dying to stay here, yeah. And I, I never got it. I regret it very much. Yeah. I didn't ask him in time. He didn't think of me in time. He didn't think of me in time. And do you think this is something that you could pass on to somebody else, or would it be just a? Uh, I'm entitled to pass on to anybody. Oh yeah. Yeah. But, but I won't ever do. Why not? I've reasons of my own. Should die with me. And the reason Jim Carew gave us for not passing on the cure was that some of the people he had met were too mercenary. Most of those who have cures do not accept payment, except perhaps through a third party or payment in kind. But one man at least, John Liston, had no doubts on the subject. You have to give me a silver, yeah? Yeah, give me a silver. Give me a four-box. Trust the hand of silver, same as a gypsy, telling your fortune, something like that. But a lot of the people will not take any sort of money. A lot of the people who have the cures... Will not take money. I never heard of anyone refusing. Anyone get me money? I say. Well, there's always <laughs> a way around. I, I never got any. Just the same thing. So, couldn't hinder me from taking. You could always <laughs> do. You could always do something with it. Yes. Yes, your pints. But very often they could give the money to the wife or to a daughter or a son or someone else. I never tell him anyone being sentimental about it. You think this fellow from the north? He comes from there. What do you call him? Finbar. Finbar. He doesn't take money, does he? 
Give me the nail. He's a man, man. There's nothing to hinder anyone from taking money, as far as that's concerned. There's nothing to hinder anyone from taking money. No, there's nothing to hinder anyone. But you don't hinder anyone. It isn't. No, people don't have to give money. Give me a silver. Yeah. You used to take money. Well, we were talking to a man earlier today and all, and uh, he, he was asked to cure an animal at one stage. And the, the, the farmer asked him, how much would it cost? Yeah. And uh, he refused to cure the animal because he was asked how much would it cost. He felt that the, the, the person who wanted the animal cured was more interested in the cost of the cure than he was in the cure himself, itself, and refused to do the cure. Believe it or not. Because the man that has to manifest him is only a bit ignorant. And you shouldn't judge people as hard. Everybody is as good as what they can be. The value of different animals in the Irish economy has varied from time to time, and cures always developed around the more valuable. The cow and her produce are still of prime importance, but they were even more important in the past. Dr. Logan. It's very difficult for us here nowadays. Uh, living in Dublin, to appreciate the importance of the cow, the milking cow. The milking cow was the centre, in a sense, of farm life, and she had to be protected. For instance, a young heifer in calf for the first time, you had to burn the hair off the udder, and that had to be done with a blessed candle and prayers. But of more significance, perhaps, was when the cow had calved, there was a ritual about that. The cow was, uh, after she had calved, a lighted candle was placed on her back, then under the belly and backward through the legs, saying prayers. And this was carried out by the woman of the house, who would be the person in charge of the cattle. Of course, cattle had to be protected from everything. I remember a man in my native village, uh, and certain people wouldn't let him go in to look at their cattle. If they had bought uh, a new cow, say, they wouldn't let him in to look at her because they said he had the evil eye. Now, the evil eye was a famous belief. It seemed to be very, very vague. People would never admit uh, when you started to question them about it. But this man... Uh, wouldn't be let in to look at the cattle anyway, just in case you wouldn't take any chances on it. Uh, so that was one of the examples of protecting the cow. And of course, if you got a drink of milk and didn't say, God bless the cow, or if you finished milking without dipping a finger in the milk and making the sign of the cross on the flank of the cow, you would be certainly suspect. Or if you uh, had anything to do with the cow or came into a house when somebody was churning and didn't take a hand with the dash, everybody would say that this was a suspect, that you were at least, or the best would say about you, that you were bad-mannered, but they might even say a lot worse. They might say you were trying to take the butter from them. In all folk medicine, one has to distinguish between the purely superstitious and what might have some rational explanation. And many cures and customs do apparently have a sound scientific basis. Some of them have, but they never knew at the time why they had. They used them and they found them effective, but we have found out since that there is some kind of grounds for what they were doing. For instance, it is still common practice in Ireland today to keep a goat 
with the herd of cows. Now, um, people feel that if they keep the goat with the herd of cows, that the cows won't suffer from contagious abortion, which is a very serious condition in dairy herds in this country. Now, we know that a goat can become infected with Brucella abortus, and we also know that he's resistant to aborting to Brucella abortus. And what possibly might have been happening, and could be happening even today in the herds that we'll be using it, is that the goat would be passing out very small quantities of the Brucella organism, sufficient to keep up the immunity in the dairy herd, but not sufficient to challenge them so that they would abort. Usually in a dairy herd, when you get an outbreak of an abortion, what happens is that one animal aborts, and then they flood the whole place with the organism, and the challenge is much too much for the other cows. But where you have a goat, it is possible that that goat is excreting small quantities of organism sufficient to keep up the immunity and prevent an abortion. Bone setters who work on the human may generally also extend their services to the animal world, but it often happens that women who have inherited the art prefer not to practice it on animals. Mrs Pat Conboy of Ahavas in County Leitrim is one such, though her father, Jimmy Taig, was among the most successful bone setters in the country. There was a lot of people thought that horses weren't supposed to be tackled, you know, that they, they should be shot, that there was no marrow in their bone. He set horses, broken legs, and he, he always believed that the set faster than a cow cattle or anything else. Sheep is very fast to knit, and so was pigs. But the, the horse, he always thought, like, if it had a broken leg, and he said, a couple of various ones, but he used to set the disjoints more common for it, were more common, like, you know, disjointed shoulder in an animal, a disjointed hip in an animal, you know, dislocated hip or a dislocated shoulder, in other words. And are there any people around now who set bones in animals? Well, around these parts. <laughs> his, his son-in-law here now, my husband here, he went around with him for four years or five after he come here. So, he, matter of fact, he used to get him to set the bones or to do the job for him, you know, because he was got stiff. He was a heavy, big, heavy man and got too stiff, like, to go down on his, with his knee and to crush back an animal's shoulder, you know. It takes a good, strong shove the knee for to get back the joint which two or four maybe people pull on the joint in each direction but uh, he, he taught him or he, he at least he, he, he learned anyway through his the experience he had helping him and he's very successful he sets animals all over the country surgery and folk medicine has usually been confined to dehorning and castration of cattle and we put it to veterinary surgeon colin flynn that many of the methods used in the old days were rather crude. They were pretty crude, but of course they were the only thing they had at the time, and and, and it would, they, they were exercising their skill as best they could. This thing of the slip shoulder and, and uh, incising it and putting a piece of black thorn, or we heard earlier on, somebody would put a woodbine into it, or uh, something else. In actual fact, what they were doing was introducing an irritant to set up a, a, a state of inflammation. And this would increase the blood supply to the area and would increase the chances of the thing resolving itself. The same as putting a blister on it. Anything that would increase, make an irritation, would increase the blood supply and would uh, give it a better chance of getting better. Mm. It's uh, much the same as a poultice or, or um, 
a massage or, or anything that's going to, to um, bring more blood into the scene will enhance the chances of, of, of getting a cure. Well, there were old methods of castration and dehorning, which were pretty crude too, weren't they? Well, of course, the, the, there was only one method of dehorning, and that was that you had to become more powerful than the animal that you were trying to dehorn. And in other words, you had to knock it down, sit in it, and then chop the horns off it. And uh, it's interesting in that there is, as under the Diseases of Animals Act, there is a law that prohibits dehorning except under a general anaesthetic. Now, this law was brought in before local anaesthetics were introduced, and it is still illegal today to dehorn an animal under local anaesthetic, even though it's quite satisfactory from our point of view and it's quite effective. It's still illegal to dehorn an animal unless you give it um, a complete anaesthetic. And the anaesthetic they had in mind at the time was chloroform. But uh, the, uh, the method of dehorning that we had in the older days was you had a set of hobbles, you knocked the animal down, or else you had a set of ropes, then you cast it, and uh, you sat on top, but then you chopped the horns off. And, uh, of course, the struggling increased the animal's blood pressure and made sure that you were going to get more bleeding than you would otherwise. There were very... There was one, one camel where they got a, a bit of elder steak and they scooped out the pit and they, they got a small piece of elder steak, split it in half down the middle, scooped out the pit from each half and they got a knife, they cut into the testicle, isolated the cord and filled the hollow portion of the, the elder stick with copper sulphate and then tied it tightly around the cord on both sides. And it had a, a, a slow caustic effect that it actually burnt off the testicle. It's a cheap castration. Of course, which was going to close up yeah. the blood supply and the copper sulfate. Copper sulfate had an antiseptic effect as well. You know, it, that was it. Was, it was a bit slow and painful. They get, they get years out of it. Yeah, a bit slow and painful. But I still do it with a knife. Yeah. Yeah. I still do it with a knife. But I cut them clean out. Methods such as those just described are now obsolete and unnecessary, so that the days of the handyman and the non professional in nearly every branch of veterinary medicine, would appear to be numbered. Cures, no doubt, will continue to be done, but what with x-rays and the wonder drugs of modern science, the rites and rituals of so many of the folk cures are being outdone. All the magic and all the mystery now seem to be in the hands of the vets. I think they were very great men that I couldn't compete with at all.